We are continuing this morning with uh, what is a newly launched series in the book of Romans. And uh, we are actually picking up this morning at verse 8 of chapter 1. I'm going to work through to verse 15. If you were with us for last week's study, you'll know that during our time there, we looked at the first seven verses of this letter and the first really two parts, I think, of Paul's introduction. In the first part... Paul introduced himself as one who was a servant or slave of Christ, as one who was called by God and set apart for the gospel. In the second part, Paul introduced his message uh, and by giving us uh, six things that characterized the gospel that he was preaching, uh, namely that uh, the fact that it was of God, that is, it was not of or from anyone else, the fact that it was announced and promised by the prophets, and so was not new news, even if it was very good news. It's part of what God's been doing all along. The fact that it was attested by the scriptures, which Paul fully affirmed, which he needed to affirm in that context. The fact that it was centered on Jesus Christ in his humanity and his divinity. The fact that it was a message that resulted in grace-changed and graciously changing lives and bringing about the obedience of faith, and finally the fact that its ultimate aim was the honor and glory of God. In the passage before us this morning, we will basically be finishing out that introduction, Paul's introduction, looking at the third and final part in verses 8 to 15. And here, uh, Paul, after introducing himself and his message, takes a few moments on the front end to talk briefly about the whole matter of his lack of connection with the church in Rome, as well as his hopes to rectify that situation. Now, as for why this issue has found its way into Paul's introduction of such a letter as this, we cannot say with absolute certainty. Nevertheless, in having acknowledged that, uh, a number of scholars feel that there was an unanswered question in the minds of some people in Paul's day. And it went something like this. Why has Paul, the self-confessed apostle to the Gentiles, why has this man thus far not made a single trip to Rome? Rome was easily the most prominent city in the world in that day. Paul had certainly been going long enough to have made a journey there. He'd started and completed two different missionary tours at this point in his life. He'd planted a number of churches, and he'd made more than one trip to a number of those churches since their having been planted. So why not even one trip to Rome? After all, Rome was the epicenter of Gentileness, the city of cities, was it not? And was not Paul the apostle to the Gentiles by Christ's own commissioning? Well, again, we don't know for certain, but it does seem uh, from what Paul writes that someone has uh, asked him this question, or he's at least aware of this question, to explain why he hadn't made it to Rome. And he he seems to feel a need to respond to that at the front end of this letter. And so he does. And as he does, he talks about why he hasn't made it, and he gives some clear indicators that the problem was not a problem of desire, And goes even one further to talk about how for him going to Rome was not just a hope, not just a good opportunity, it was an obligation. In other words, 
for Paul, not going to Rome was not an option in his mind. That's what we're going to be looking at before we go any further. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please hear us now as we again turn to you with hopeful expectation that you will now take these words that you wrote and that you preserved and clarify them for us. Make their meaning apparent. Make their application obvious. Bring yourself in to clearer focus through them. Draw us to yourself by them. And then honor yourself by the continued outworking of these truths that do not and cannot and will not return to you without having accomplished everything you've ordained for them to accomplish. We're privileged to be a part of that, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There are, in my view, three main things, as I've already indicated, that Paul's trying to communicate to the Roman Christians here. There are three things he wants them to know regarding his plans to visit them. First of all, he wants them to know that his failure to come and see them, and thus far, uh, thus far has not been, in, uh, it's not it's been intentional. He's not coming. It's not been intentional. He hasn't been avoiding them. He hasn't forgotten about them. He hasn't assigned to them a lesser priority. The problem isn't that he's been lacking in any desire to visit. We see that in his statement about his continually praying that he might at last, at last succeed in coming to see them. We see that in his statement that he longed to see them. Oh, that's a powerful word there, longing. We see that in his statement that he had often intended to come and see them. Right? I mean, the clear picture painted here is of an apostle who, far from forgetting about them or putting them at the bottom of his to-do list, has repeatedly made plans to come and see them, only to have those plans interrupted or thwarted in some way every single time, resulting in his returning to God in prayer, asking that he might, again, be granted an opportunity to see them. So, 
There's no lack of desire on Paul's part. There's just a lack of opportunity. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see, and we'll take a bit longer to unpack this one, but the second thing uh, I want you to see after looking at why Paul hasn't yet come to see the Roman Christians is to see how Paul's words here highlight a number of reasons why he clearly strongly wanted to come and see them and would have wanted to come and see them. Uh, Several things can be highlighted uh, in this regard. Uh, For one thing, Paul was extremely thankful to God for the faith of the Roman Christians. Notice what he says. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, this is not the main thing here, but please, as Lig Duncan suggests, please do not miss the implications of what Paul is saying here. What is Paul thankful for? He is thankful for the faith of the Roman Christians that has now been proclaimed in all the world. Here's the question. Who does Paul say he's thankful to for this faith? He's thankful to God. So think about that for a moment. In other words, he's not thankful to the Romans for their faith. He's thankful to God, which tells you what? It tells you this, that Paul understood that even the faith that saves God's people is ultimately a gift from God. Paul understood that the Romans have contributed nothing to their salvation. Paul understands that Jesus, by his death, didn't just build a structure that almost bridges this gap between God and man, and all that's required is this sort of free will exercise of a person's self-generated faith to close that gap. If Paul did understand these things in that way, then he would never have said what he said. He wouldn't have thanked God for the Romans' faith. He would have thanked the Romans for their own faith. But he doesn't do that. He expressly doesn't do that. Again, it's not the main thing here, but it's something not to miss. And so Paul is thankful to God for the faith of the Romans. He's thankful that because of God's initiative, they are and have been acting out their faith in clear and obvious ways. So obvious, in fact, that people are noticing Stories are being told. The word is on the street, on many streets, on streets miles and miles away from the city of Rome, apparently. People are talking. God's people are talking about God's people in Rome. To put it another way, God's people in Rome have gotten a reputation. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I heard a lot of things about getting a reputation. Um... My mother would tell me, uh, she'd say, you listen to me, don't you go out and do this or don't go do that, because why? If you do, you'll get a reputation. And uh, she used to talk about the importance of not getting a reputation a lot. And so it's kind of beaten into my brain as I was growing up that getting a reputation is always a bad idea. It's uh, something to be avoided at all costs, getting a reputation. But in the situation depicted here, getting a reputation actually is a good thing. Paul is glad that the Roman Christians have a reputation. He's happy that their faith is known. Why? Because faith by its very nature is invisible. It's not something you can see, not some sort of discrete quantity that exists on its own. You can't take a spiritual x-ray of somebody and then hold up the film to the light and you can point to this sort of dark mass and you say, oh, that thing right there, that's faith, that stuff right there. Faith only becomes evident when it's exercised. It only becomes obvious 
when a certain decision gets made, say, or an action is taken, or sometimes it's evidence when an action is avoided, or sometimes when something is said, and sometimes when you decide to hold your tongue. You can't see faith. You can't detect it until it's exercised. And that's another reason why Paul is thankful, because their faith has become concrete, visible, noticeable, undeniable. It's evident. And so because Paul is so thankful to God for the Romans, uh, for this evident faith, it's only natural and right that he would want to see them, to be with them. The more he hears about their reputation, their good reputation, the more he wanted to go and be amongst them, to see for himself, to confirm with his eyes all these reports that he's been getting through his ears, these things he's only heard about up till now. That's one reason I think Paul would have wanted to come and see the Romans. He was so thankful for them. Another reason Paul wanted to come and see them, I'm convinced, is because he's been praying unceasingly for them. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You know, while it's not necessary that we conclude from what Paul writes here that he's saying that he prays, you know, all day, every day, every minute of every day, I don't think that's what he's saying. That's not his point. But there's no question that what he is saying is that he prays for them a lot, frequently. They're on his heart and mind a great deal. And when that happens, he turns that into a prayer. And Paul is completely sincere in this. He's so sincere that he actually employs an oath here. He calls God as his witness, uh, the, the God that he serves wholeheartedly with his spirit. And the thing that God is called as a witness to is the fact that Paul does pray frequently and steadily for the Roman Christians, including the specific prayer that he might be eventually able to go and see them. And the reason he calls God as witness on that is simply because nobody else is in a position to know whether Paul is telling the truth on that or not. Right? I mean, nobody else can read Paul's mind. Nobody can look into his heart and see whether he's making things up or whether he's grossly exaggerating these reports of his prayers for them. Nobody knows the truth about any of that except God. So, Paul calls God as his witness. So, Paul really does pray a lot for them. And when he does, amongst other things... When he remembers the Romans and prays for them, likely on lots of subjects, but he always has this one thing, that he might go and see them. Now, why he prays for that, uh, and what he wants to do when he's with them, we'll say something about in a minute, but the point now is that that is what. He was praying, and he was doing it a lot. Doing it a lot. But just this fact, right, the fact of Paul's persistent prayers for the Roman Christians is, I believe, another factor... And Paul's strong desire to go and see them and to encourage them and to minister to them. Right? One of the main catalysts for his wanting to go and see them is the fact that he was regularly taking these people before the Lord in prayer. And that regular, consistent, persistent practice did something to Paul. It did something to him. Because let me tell you, 
if you don't already know it, I hope you do. But here's the thing. You love who you pray for. You love who you pray for. Prayer draws the heart in. It softens the heart. It enhances the affections. It's just part of how it works. It's the mechanism of prayer. Show me a person who doesn't love their neighbor and I'll show you a person who isn't praying for their neighbor. Show me a person who has little or no compassion for the lost and I'll show you a person who is not praying for the lost. Show me a person who's hanging on to a grudge, a hatred, a bitterness toward their enemies and I'll show you a person who is not praying for their enemies. Okay, I thought about this when I wrote that. It's kind of silly. I remember Billy Joel's song, Only the Good Die Young. I'm not recommending the ethic of that song, by the way. It's a nice tune. But uh, remember the line where he's talking about this girl, Virginia's mother, and he says, she never cared for me. But did she ever say a prayer for me? Um, Of course, he said that in complete self-righteousness. But the idea of praying for people you don't like was there. It's there when Jesus talks about praying for those who persecute us, praying for our enemies. Why? Because it affects you. It it changes you as a person. Show me a person who doesn't love the church and I'll show you a person who doesn't pray for the church. Because there's no way that you could pray persistently, faithfully, for the people of God, by name, by circumstance, without falling in love with the people of God, with the very people that you are praying for. That's what Paul was doing for the Roman Christians. He was praying for them a lot. And I'm convinced that it's part of the thing that drew him toward them. It's why he loved them, even though he'd never been there amongst them. And so that affection that was born of his prayers was also then a factor, I believe, in his desire to go and be with them, to fellowship with them, build and enhance that relationship. So one reason Paul wanted to see the Roman Christians was because he was thankful to God for them and their faith. Another reason is because he had been praying and he continued to pray persistently for them. And that prayer, among other things, drew him toward them with genuine affection. Still another reason Paul wanted to see the Roman Christians was because, as this passage says, he desired to impart to them some spiritual gift that would strengthen them. Now, as for what this spiritual gift was, what he's talking about, we don't know for sure. But what does seem fairly certain is that whatever he means, he doesn't mean there... Uh, spiritual gift in the sense of you know one of the gifts that we see in other places in the Bible that are given by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it seems clear that he's not talking about that. So if not that, what does Paul mean? And I, and I think the most likely answer to that is to say that I think he's being intentionally vague here. Because, precisely because, he hasn't yet visited the church. And, and because he hasn't arrived there yet, and because he hasn't yet been able to assess how things are on the ground in Rome, 
then he, he really doesn't know what precisely this gift is going to look like, what it's going to turn out to be when he's amongst them. He only knows that once he's there, in the midst of it all, it's going to happen. He knows he wants to give them some gift. Some blessing will flow out of his ministry to them and be suited to their circumstances. He knows that this has been his practice in all the other churches to which he's been sent. And he knows that whatever the gift or blessing, its intent will be to strengthen them and build them up and encourage them. It happens everywhere else he's gone. There's no reason to think it would not happen in Rome. But please notice this. It's not just them that he hopes to encourage. This isn't just about the Romans. It's about Paul, too. Paul's also assuming that he will be encouraged by them. In other words, Paul isn't thinking about that this is a one-way street here. He isn't assuming that just because he's the apostle, uh, that he's the only one in whom or through whom God is working or, or can work and, or, and will minister to other people. That's stupid. That's absurd. Paul isn't too proud to receive from the Roman believers. He values what they bring to the equation. He wants their ministry. He needs their ministry. And that's huge. I remember early in our time in Australia having a conversation with an Australian pastor who was reflecting on some of his recent experiences with some American church planners that had come across to help the Australians out. A phrase that he uttered with only slightly disguised sarcasm. And that conversation was a gift for me, I can tell you. The timing of it could not have been better. It was so helpful for me to hear this man express disdain, and rightly so, for the attitude that he'd seen all too often from international visitors that came into the Australian scene to show people how to do ministry the right way, the best way. The American way. It distressed him to see so many people who had come with the assumption that they had a lot to teach, but not much to learn. Not much to gain. And it ought to have distressed him. Because it's wrong. It's arrogant. And it's not at all a reflection of the perspective that we see, I think, mirrored here in the Apostle Paul. Paul wants to go because, among other things, he knows that he's going to be receiving some good things from being amongst them. And he's glad for that. He's not too proud for that. Well, in addition to hearing Paul talk about why he hasn't yet made the trip to Rome, you know, not because of a lack of desire, but a lack of opportunity, and then hearing him talk about why he wants... And is eager to go and see them because he's thankful, he's been praying for them, uh, and that's pulled his heart in. He wants to give and receive a spiritual gift. In addition to all of that, the third and final thing I want us to focus on is how not only does Paul want to go and see the Romans, there's a very real sense in which he must go and see the Romans. He has an obligation more than just an opportunity, he feels an obligation. Now, we seem to be increasingly allergic to words like obligation and duty in the church in recent years. But can I gently say, please get over that. 
Words like obligation, duty, they are biblical words. They are good words. We ought not be ashamed of saying them. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now what is this obligation Paul's talking about? The idea is something along the lines of indebtedness. Um, it's sort of like, sort of like uh, or related to the idea of a repayment of a debt, although with a very interesting twist. When you think about the subject of debt or paying a debt or fulfilling an obligation in that particular monetary fashion, there's different ways you can think about that. Um, one writer illustrates it like this. Uh, one kind of indebtedness or obligation occurs if, for example, I borrow $1,000 from you, and once I borrow that money, I am now indebted to you for $1,000. I owe you something. I've incurred a debt, and I'm now obligated to pay it to you. But there's another kind of indebtedness. Let's suppose someone gives me $1,000, and they, they give it to me, not loaning it, they give it to me, and they tell me, that that $1,000 is not for me. It's for you. In that scenario, I also have an obligation to you, but one of a different sort. I have an obligation, not because of something I've borrowed, not because I'm paying somebody back or trying to even the score, that something that needs repaying, but because I've been entrusted with this gift that's supposed to be passed on to you. I'm obligated to pass that on to you. This second sort of indebtedness, this second kind of obligation is the one that is now resting on Paul. Right? This is what he's feeling. The gospel, the, this precious, precious gift that has been given to him, been trusted to him. And this is where the illustration is not exact, it breaks down a bit. But it's, it has been trusted to him so that he can benefit, absolutely, and he does benefit. But it's not just that. It hasn't been entrusted to him so that he can just treasure it personally and revel in it, but also so that he can share it with others. With all kinds of others. With Greeks and barbarians, which is to say with cultured and uncultured. With the wise and the foolish, that is, with those who will respond and those who may not. But Paul understands and he feels this obligation that the gospel has placed upon him and he feels it deeply. And he feels in a very real sense, Paul feels indebted to every person because of that. He feels indebted to pass on what he's received by God's gracious hand. But there's more. Because Paul's sense of obligation does not stop there. It's not just to those outside the church that Paul feels a gospel obligation. Toward? And guess what? It's toward those inside the church that Paul feels a gospel obligation. To the wise who have heard and have responded, like the Roman Christians, but who regardless of that fact are still in need of hearing and being taught the gospel all the days of their life. And you've heard me say before, and in saying it I'm only standing on the shoulders of others who've said it far better than me, 
quoting from them and said it far more clearly than I have ever said it, but the simple reality is that gospel is the truth that Christians most need to understand, and it is the same truth that we struggle the most to believe and to continue to believe all the time. Um, the gospel is not just the beginnings of Christianity, it's the whole, it's the, it's the whole package It's not just the bare minimum required information necessary to get into the kingdom of God. It's the way that we actually make progress as believers. When a person becomes a Christian, it's not as if we learn the gospel and we kind of move on to some deeper truth. The reality is you never really get past the truth of the gospel. There's a sense in which you never go beyond it. You never outgrow it. You never graduate from gospel truths to some other kinds of truths. Uh, you, you You can't really get past it. You can go deeper into it you can't get past it. And why? Because, because there, is no, there is no deeper truth in Scripture than the unfathomable mystery of the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's something to contemplate for all eternity. And you will spend the rest of your Christian life learning what it means, and how to live according to it, as if you actually do believe it. And how to believe it in every circumstance, including and especially the very hard ones. So Paul's desire to come and preach the gospel in Rome was certainly an evangelistic desire, and that he wanted to see lost people converted in Rome but it was also a sanctifying desire. It's very clear in this passage that he wants to preach the gospel to the Roman Christians. People who already knew it. It's because he was convinced that it's only through that, only through a deeper grasp of that, that any growth, any forward movement is going to happen in the Christian life. So let me attempt to wrap it up. This passage tells us at least three things. Paul is saying that his failure to make it to Rome was not from a lack of desire, only a lack of opportunity. He's saying that on the contrary, there are a number of reasons for his wanting to go and be with them because he is thankful to God for them, because he has been praying unceasingly for them, because he wants to give them a spiritual gift and he wants to to encourage them in some particular way and he actually wants to receive and benefit from the encouragement he knows is waiting there for him in Rome. And thirdly, he's saying that even beyond all the reasons that he could give for wanting to go is the simple fact that he feels he must go to them. There is an indebtedness that he feels toward them. There's something that he's been given which he feels so strongly about that it is not his right to just hang on to it. For Paul to have received this message... Um, and then put it in his pocket and hang on to it. Would you know? And I, I know it's a simplistic illustration, but I can't get past it. It's like someone handing you a notebook with the cure for cancer written in it, and you take it and you put it on your shelf, and there it stays. You leave it there, hoping that somebody asks you about it one day. It's insane to think that way. It'd be crazy to do something like that. So why do we do it? How can we think that doing something like that 
a cure for cancer on a shelf somewhere. How can we think that that would be crazy? And yet be okay with having no sense of obligation to pass on truths that for you have meant deliverance and forgiveness and mercy and grace and freedom and love and hope, not just in the life here and now, but life and eternity and fellowship with the living God and a million other things. Paul would say, how can we take words like that, truths like that, these words of eternal life, and just treat them like so much information? Do we not believe a single word of it? May the God of mercy, the God of our mercies, instill us with a proper and deep and abiding sense of the preciousness of this gift that we have been given, that is the gospel and of the intended destination of this gift, which is not right here. May God build within us that same desire, that same eagerness, and yes, same sense of obligation that tugged at Paul's heart to bring this gospel into every relationship, saved and lost, that God has ordained as part of our journey. Every single one. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for yawning at the majesty of the gospel. Father, give us um, that sort of gratitude, uh, that sense of um, unbelievable mercy that just seems to have driven Paul and a sense of your kindness, a sense of the goodness of the good news. Would you please grip us with that? Help us with our unbelief. We talk ourselves out of believing that this is the best news we could possibly give somebody. Uh, please... Please help us with this, with our unbelief there, Father. Please, in your mercy, uh, make that a growing reality for us. We thank you for your patience with us in this. We thank you that you use us in our faulty and inconsistent ways. You love us in spite of ourselves. And, uh, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for that continued patience with us. Um, but please finish your work in us. And make, make this one of the evidences of that, the cre increasing freedom with which we speak about you and show and tell your gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward, we will collect that at this time.